to set the tone for the meeting, I will read an extract from chapter Working with Others, page 96. Do not discourage if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. You find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. If you leave such a person alone, he, he may soon become convinced that he cannot recover by himself. To spend too much time on any one situation is to deny some other alcoholic an opportunity to live and be happy. One of our fellowship failed entirely with his first half dozen prospects. He often says that if he had continued to work on them, he might have deprived many others who have since recovered of their chance. Tonight's meeting is part three of working step 12 with the sponsee, and Tim will share anything between 30 and 45 minutes on the topic, after which the floor will be opened for questions rather than the typical share. I will now hand it over to Tim. Please, Tim. Thanks, Omar. Can you all hear me all right? Okay. I think I'm coming. I think the voice is coming through my headset. If you have trouble hearing me, if it goes in and out, then there's something. So let me know straight away so I can fix it, because there are different ways I can connect the sound. Um, so uh, one topic which is very common in sponsorship, the, the call starts something like this. Um, someone calls and says, uh, since eight o'clock this morning, I've been feeling very, and then they tell you how they've been feeling. And then they say, maybe I ought to join. And then they name another fellowship, um, you know, which is a life changing decision. You know, I'm going to spend the rest of my life going to at least one meeting a week and sponsoring people, you know, day in, day out for the rest of my uh, now. Uh, what I'd say first of all about this, I've, I've very often had sponsees who, unless they go to OA and get an OA sponsor and call to do their daily food plan and acquire some abstinence and, you know, do all of that, then I won't, there's no point in sponsoring them in AA because they won't be able to do anything. Um, uh, particularly if it's really kind of, you know, galloping, uh, bulimia or anorexia, uh, it renders people, both of those will render people in a state where they're just unable to take anything in. So unless, they, it, you know, they might as well be taking heroin, frankly, as far as the AA programme is concerned. So uh, what I've learned with AA sponsees who, who also have a food thing going on, and I'm going to be really blunt here, if they look underweight, they're probably underweight. And if they're underweight, there's probably a food problem going on because very few people in society are like technically underweight as far as BMI is concerned. And I've ne when, I've, when I've called it out, I've never been wrong. Uh, in retrospect, they've, they've always ended up in OA and admitted they're anorexics. So you're not, if you think it, if you think it, it's not, it's unlikely to be wrong. Um, and you'll go around in circles until the food stuff is dealt with. And it's the same in my experience with um, uh, people who are uh, like full-blown sex addicts with really kind of, um, you know, dangerously antisocial behavior and all, all, all that. And sometimes they undercover as well. But there's, my experience with sponsees with problems in sex is a line in the big book that everyone has problems with sex. And there's, a, there's, I think it's true with food as well. Everyone seems to have a, you know, very few people come into recovery with a completely ordered relationship with food. There's usually something going on. So there's a spectrum here and who knows where the line is. But I've had the same experience with people, with sponsees who are kind of full-blown sex addicts, you know, rushing around doing what they're doing. And the AA program doesn't take until that's dealt with head on. Uh, and in particular, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but crystal meth. Uh, if there's crystal meth in the mix, there are usually activities which involve other people and we're not talking backgammon or tango. 
Now, unless unless that whole cluster of drugs and other activities is dealt with, um, there's someone else here. Uh, <laughs> unless that's dealt with, again, that the program won't take. And Jim Willis says in in his workbooks, he says unless you've got a clear mind for this process, it won't work. So you need a clear mind to do the process. If someone's engaged in an active addiction then it needs to stop. Now, I would draw a contrast between that and someone who's 18 months sober, has done half of their amends and has problems in their romantic relationship. Someone who hasn't made amends to any of their exes <laughs> and is having problems in their romantic relationship. Well, uh, you know, maybe I ought to do SLA 18 times a week. Well, maybe. But um, the thing is about the there's a little bit of history here. The reason why multiple fellowships exist is because step one needs a rallying point. And if you've got a problem, if your alcohol isn't your problem, you can't be a member of AA. So why those AA, those other fellowships developed is to give the 12 steps as an available option to people who who couldn't access them through AA because they don't qualify. Now, it doesn't mean that one can't benefit from these other um, fellowships, but the fallacy is uh, uh, because a fellowship exists for sex and relationships, uh, suddenly sex and relationships can't be dealt with in AA or CA or Al-Anon because there's a specific fellowship for that. So one must sort of go over there for, for that. And of course, when you go, you know, you, you say, right, I'm going to go to, to SLA to solve my uh, relationship problems. You say, well, what have you got for me? And they say, the 12 steps. You say, well, the ones I've just said don't work over there. Well, why are they going to work over here? Because it's the steps, it's the steps which do the business. Now, it doesn't mean, I mean, I, I want a huge amount of benefit from other fellowships. I, I say it's not to diss the notion of going to other fellowships or multiple fellowships, but one's got to be clear what one's doing. And I talked to a very nice, a very, very nice person who I, I, I like a lot. He's been in recovery for 20 odd years, who we were talking about, we we're discussing this and about how sometimes it can feel that you're taking your little shopping trolley to all of these different fellowships and loading up your shopping trolley with little tidbits from each one. And God is falling between the cracks. So one is trying to acquire tools and mechanisms and insights to somehow do a jigsaw puzzle to produce a recovered person. And what you end up with is a sort of Frankenstein's monster with no life of its own. And I did, I did this myself. I, the, you know, the combinations of different fellowships and psychotherapy and the, you know, adult children of alcoholics books and the, um, uh, the codependency books and all of this and it and my alcoholism um it grew like weeds in the cracks between these because I was still in charge there wasn't the notion of just letting go of everything letting go of everything and saying god what do I do next give me the next right action give me the next right action give me the next right action um other phenomena, this is a little bit random. I haven't, this isn't a structured orderly thing. So I apologize for that. So it's going to come out as it comes out. Uh, one danger is to not complete the AA program, realize there's still some stuff that is not fixed and think the answer is another fellowship. And of course that puts you back at step one and delays the completion of the step nine and your ego will love this. Oh, goody, another step four, another examination of myself when the amends haven't been completed from the first step four. I, I think a super helpful approach with the steps is to be both systematic and simple. Um, so to, if, if you decide you're going to do the steps in one fellowship, complete them, complete every last amend. Uh, do sane and sound ideals for all of the other problem areas, maybe get some input from people who've got experience in those areas, maybe from other fellowships. You know, I've got um, 
really helpful. I'm not a member of SLA, but I've got really helpful ideas from SLA about bottom lines and, and things like that uh, in that area. That was a big problem area for me. So what, you know, in AA, one can learn from other fellowships without going and becoming a fully fledged member, putting yourself back at step one and ending up in multiple step processes. So complete the steps, do a bunch of same and sound ideals, start sponsoring people and give it a year and see whether things calm down. When I had, a, as Chris Raymond would call it, a barnstorming spiritual experience in, oh, I don't know, it's about 15 years sober. Um, it knocks you sideways and all of the other problems were still there at the end of it in one way or another, often internally. It took two or three years for all of that to calm down. It took two or three years for that spirit, that, that single spiritual experience. This was at 15 years sober. It took two or three years before the, 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 the uh, it's like when a wave hits, you know, there's, it's, there's, it, it's going to knock everything all over the place. And it takes a while to reconstruct, to learn all the lessons there are to learn. Um, and I just, I just needed to, uh, some, someone on here is going to laugh at this phrase. Uh, um, what's that thing about time? Let time take time or let, I can't, I can't even remember the phrase, but let time do its work. And very often, these things, they have a, ha I, in my experience, they have these other problems. Most of them have a habit of just dissolving gradually over time, just through consistent application of steps 10, 11, and 12, lots of service, lots of sponsorship. And you wake up a couple of years later and a problem, give time, time. That was it. Um, uh, they, they have a problem working themselves out without me having to hammer at something. Um, uh, I do, in, the point of the higher power is I don't solve my own problems by obsessive activity. I solve it by letting go, keeping out of my own way and staying out of my own mind for long enough for it to literally physically heal for the old neural pathways to dissolve for the neurons literally to the, the, the chemicals in the neurons literally to be repurposed to build new neural pathways. I mean, this is not, this is actual neuro, this is actually what happens in your brain. If certain neural pathways aren't used, your brain repurposes them. And that takes a lot of time. So I've saved myself a lot of grief by letting time, get by giving time time. Uh, completing a set of steps once and then see and giving it time and then seeing what's left over. And then you see what's important. The, then I could see, okay, this is something that needs dealing with. That is something that needs dealing with. Um, uh, the other thing as well, it can get very confusing to go to a whole bunch of different fellowships at once, to be on in different steps on different fellowships, having multiple sponsors in different fellowships. I've seen people who are very adroit and skillful at maybe 20 years juggling, having an Al-Anon sponsor and an AA sponsor and a this sponsor and a that sponsor. But it takes a lot of skill. It's just like when people are in therapy. If you've had sponsors who are in therapy, there's nothing wrong with therapy. If you have had sponsors who are in therapy, they'll often spend a lot of time taking everything that you've said to the therapist, seeing what the therapist says about it, and then taking everything that the therapist says, telling you about it and then you feel as though you're having a conversation with the therapist via the sponsee and then they're, they're the center of an awful lot of professional attention uh, so it can be people can end up playing systems off against each other they're not being mean or malicious or difficult on purpose it's just how people operate i've i've done it <laughs> and i've seen other people do it so do one thing at a time do it properly let it settle um, I'm sure Evan will be able to sort of correct me on this about when you're when you're when you're trying to fix code, you fix you try one thing at a time and you fix that and you see if you run it again, you see if it works or it doesn't work. If you if you, fix, if you change two things at once and then you rerun it, you don't know which thing fixed it. Regression texting, testing. There you go. So uh, it, to, to try one thing at a time, try it really properly and give it time and let it work itself through. 
uh, as I said, the what the big caveat there, big caveat is if there is a, a, a as they would say with liver disease, a fulminating liver disease or galloping consumption, some addictive process which is just totally blocking you from even engaging in the process. And it can be you get 10 people with dysfunctional relationships. Nine can work the program and heal in that relationship. One out of 10 needs to be out of the relationship and block the number for six months before they can even start to thaw out from the... Um, uh, for, for, from the toxicity, I'm sorry, I'm mixing metaphors, they're detoxified from the toxicity of that relationship. And it can take a while to figure out which is going on. So, so you know, d is it okay for your sponsee to do three fellowships? Uh, with some people, it's absolutely the right thing to do. With other people, they won't make progress in any. So it's something that has to be played very much by ear. And one's got to examine each situation, talk around, ask around. One point about multiple fellowships as well. Um, uh, it's very sense. It can be very sensible to escalate gradually. So first of all, one can read the books of a fellowship and listen to some tapes and go to a few meetings. And honestly, I've known people that have done that with some Al-Anon stuff. They've read some books. They've gone to a few meetings. They've written down some tips, and they caught they bolt those materials onto their existing AA program. Um, other people need to go further and um, go to a meeting regularly. Other people need to go further and do the first three steps in that fellowship. That's a super helpful way because once you get to step four in most fellowships, things are pretty much the same. Um, so what I get people to do who've got food or sex problems is to definitely do um, steps one, two, three in SLA or SA or, or OA and then kind of it's like tributaries to a river. You get to step four. You're doing step four to nine on your whole life. As long as you've examined the powerlessness and the insanity and you've surrendered that area and you've got if it's, you know, essay or slide, you've got some bottom lines and some middle lines and some these lines and some those lines. And with OA, you've got your daily plans and whatever. You know, some people have little scales where they measure things. Other people are much more intuitive about things. But you've got a plan in place and someone to be accountable to. And then you can combine multiple fellowships and it doesn't cause a problem because you've basically got a single process with multiple tributaries in the first three steps. And then the final um the, the final stage, if that doesn't work, if you're still if you're still screwed, you might need to, you know, become a fully fledged member of the other fellowship and what i've seen work pretty well i for about five years uh, uh tom gave me this notion of when you're standing somewhere uh like in a queue you're usually leaning more on one leg rather than the other leg so both legs are supporting you but you're leaning primarily on the left leg or primarily on the right leg and in my first 11 years of AA, first 11 years of recovery, I, I was leaning uh, uh, on my AA leg with a little bit of Al-Anon thrown in. I then had ooh, five years of leaning almost entirely on my Al-Anon leg. Al-Anon was the absolute core of my life, and but I was still doing AA as a fully fledged member. Uh, and then it switched again at 15, 16 years. And uh, I went back to AA as my main thing. In the last couple of years, it, it's I'm leaning about 60% AA, 40% anon. Um, so that the, the, the weight can change. And I've seen people do that with, you know, UA and DA and GA, all sorts of other things. But to know which one, the, the, the primary weight, where the primary weight is, where home is it's very difficult to have a real home in my experience in more than one place the loyalty always seems to gravitate there's always a, in my case or maybe other people are different there's a center of gravity somewhere and that can shift uh and i've had to let it shift where it needs to shift for me to be entirely at home so years 11 to 15 11 to 16 somewhere around there i was doing a lot of aa service and my problem was that I was in, I'd be in like an intergroup meeting and someone 
would say something, my whole body would tense up and I would stop breathing. And then three, and basically I was reacting to some angry alcoholics. I won't say which intergroup. I was reacting to some angry alcoholics who were starting to get a bit tense. And I needed, I needed somewhere to go to um, examine my reaction to alcoholics so I could continue to go to AA. I just I did not want to carry on going I was I find it very difficult to be around alcoholics had the same thing because of sponsorship as well you know if you're called by 20 or 30 people a week um if you haven't got your wits about you it can grind you down if you're not if you're not uh triaging things correctly so to cut a long story short um there isn't a one size fits all approach with sponsees and other fellowships. There's a whole range of different experiences. And all you can do is uh, give some advice and guidance and they get to follow their conscience. And there's a great line in the book uh, where if he wants to try a different approach, he should follow his conscience. I think it says conscience. I may be wrong there. But anyway, it's not follow the latest idea that's come into his head. It's it's a genuine matter of conscience, which requires deep contemplation. Um, before I go on to uh, the thorny topics of sex, food and uh, dating, does anyone have any questions about any of that? Claire. Just a quick question, and it's it's more the logistics of it. So um, if you would be working with an alcoholic through the steps of AA and then halfway through the step work, other problems start to show their face like dramatic weight loss and so forth. Would you pause the work and say, suggest that they at least join other fellowship, make friends there rather than do this rather than stop the step work? I don't know. Um, pause it or ask them to go to another fellowship, but carry on the work through to step nine? Um, I'll, there's a sort of process of escalation. Um, it, it's very rare that you get halfway through the steps and then discover that there's a problem with food or there's a problem with sex. You usually find out pretty soon you know, the bags under the eyes will tell you <laughs> that there's something going on. Um, what you, where, it usually, where it usually crops up is actually in the early stages where people, it's where people relapse on alcohol. And one of the first things I always find out is what else is, what's going on with sex? What's going on with food? And very, very often, if someone is doing a whole load of work in AA, but then they're relapsing. It's almost always the case there is another addiction which hasn't been addressed. And it's so they've been kind of using the whole time uh, on food or on sex. And that's why the, 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 the uh, defences are, are down with alcohol. Uh, if something comes up mid, midstream, as it were, I shouldn't really use <laughs> midstream with sex addiction. Um, uh, if something comes up halfway through, you know, the, you go for the tests. Uh, well, where, if something comes up halfway through the, the, the steps, um, I mean, first of all, you can, tr you can try basic, you know, turn the area over to the higher power, talk to a friend in OA, get a plan in place for the food, whatever. Uh, just, you know, stay, away from the, the, stay away from the sex clubs. For, can you stay away from the sex clubs for a week? Very often people, have, if they've got a, a strongish AA programme, you discover that the abstinence side of things is actually not a big deal. If they're having trouble maintaining abstinence from, you know, really critically dangerous behaviours, then, you know, it's, it's um, they go to the Saturday morning OA meeting in Soho, do not pass go, do not collect £200, talk to X, Y and Z. And what I suggest people do is do steps one, two and three in that fellowship in a weekend. Like they've already done steps one, two and three. They already know the big book. It's taking the information they know about how the, you know, how the structure of addiction works and then immediately just applying it in that other area 
and committing to, a, you know, a few OA meetings a week, a few SA meetings a week. So you nobble it straight away. You don't want to halt the step work and put someone into a great big introspective process, because honestly, if it's if 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 it's been get, you know if they've got a sex addiction or if they've got a, a a food problem, it's been going on for years. It's not like they don't know about it. It's not like it's come up from nowhere. You know, are you willing? Are you willing to do something about it? Um, and my observation, I've been amazed and hugely gratified. The people that are willing to go to the fellowship and deal with it and go to meetings are immensely relieved that there are other people with the same problem and they get instant hope. It's that thing of that the shock of AA when you join AA is enough to overcome the resistance uh, and fear of giving up the addiction. It's so overwhelmingly positive. And with a bit of luck, they'll have that experience with OA. If they go to some really strong OA, really strong SA meetings, they're bowled over by all the support. And um, in the last couple of years, when I'm, sponsors of mine have done that, they've done really, really well. It's made, they've done amazingly well. So you catch it straight away. If it doesn't yield to just you know, the basic corrective measures of the daily program immediately launch, you know, launch them to the strongest people, you know, in that area. And that usually puts the kibosh on it. Um, Any other questions? Um, thank you, Tim, for the presentation, Omar Akhalik. If I'm sponsoring someone and that sponsee is acting out in other forms of addiction, Will I be able to detect that in his performance in the 12 steps program? Uh, you, my experience, usually, you, you'll find what it comes out sideways. People always betray themselves one way or another. Um, I mean, no, not on this topic specifically, but when you listen to how people describe things, it's people's unconscious language which reveals what's going on. Um, uh, and the daily plans will usually reveal it and da the daily review because if there's an addiction going on it's almost certainly causing trouble occasionally people can keep there are people who are very skilled at keeping things compartmentalized i i could do this for a while um but only for a while so usually it does, it comes out and you'll discover it one way or another. And it doesn't take many, if you're talking to them on a regular basis, it'll come out. So I, I don't think you need to worry about that. Um, people are just not, most people are just not good enough at covering their tracks. Thanks. So if there are no questions on that, and of course, I mean, the thing is with, with the food and sex uh, stuff and gambling and whatever send them to the expert if you've got any doubts send them to the experts who are the members of SA who are, send the Al-Anons to people who are like 100% Al-Anon send the food people to people who are like mainly OA who or for whom that's you know one of their you know, two primary things um so if, if you feel out of your depth, maybe you are, send them to someone who's got more experience. So I've got lists of people. I just, you know, shoot them straight through to the OA people on that because they're much better than, than me on that. I can deal with the sex stuff, but the food stuff is not really my area. So um, I, I, I think food, we've kind of covered that um, uh, already. Uh, with, with, the, with the sex stuff, I think it's, yeah, I think we've covered that already, actually. Um, uh you deal with with people who've got problems in that area you deal with it, it within the home program which is aa or ca or whatever with the sane and sound ideal so out of um on page 69 out of the sex inventory you get to devise with the higher power a sane and sound ideal towards which you're willing to grow and then that can be applied to any of the other problems that are presenting uh, as I say, escalate to another fellowship if necessary through the stages of visiting, listening, reading to 
becoming a regular member of a group to doing the first three steps to doing all of the steps you know so i've had sponsees that do the steps with me and then go to the other fellowship and do the steps from the beginning but only once they've completed the steps with with me i i don't think i've got anything else to say on food or sex i don't know if people have questions about either of those two topics Um, with the, the, there's one aspect of sort of dating and relationships. Um, and there is a fellowship for the dating and relationship side of it, and it's it's uh, SLAR is the obvious is the obvious one. Um, but with this one. Uh, my experience in AA uh, is that almost every almost every addict, I was certain like this, almost every addict has a problematical relationship with dating and relationships for a couple of key reasons. And the first one is basic selfishness. And I'm talking about myself here, basic selfishness. And the second one is the notion of the special relationship. Let's do the selfishness. Um, I, I'm trying to think of a way to come at this without being too um, rude about myself or other people. It's a delicate, it's a delicate topic. This Tom uh, gives the example of you know those lizards, those large lizards called Komodo dragons that some people have as pets. He said, "Your pet Komodo dragon does not love you." It loves heat and it loves flies. You're currently supplying both. So it's performing love. And addicts can be a little bit like this. I'm going to read something out if I can find it. If you'll let me pause for a moment while I look for something. And Claire will be amused at the source of this, I'm sure. It's from uh, a psychiatrist from the... Uh, from the, I think, middle of the 20th century called Otto Fenichel. I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, and he writes this on love addiction. A person who is fixed on the state where his self-esteem is regulated by external supplies goes through this world in a, in a condition of perpetual greediness. If his narcissistic needs are not satisfied, his self-esteem diminishes to a danger point. He is ready to do anything to avoid this. On the one hand, the fixation of such persons manifests itself in a tendency to react to frustrations with violence. On the other hand, their dependence impels them to try to get what they need by ingratiation and submissiveness. The conflict between these contradictory devices is characteristic for persons with this predisposition. These persons, and this is where it gets particularly spicy, these persons in their continuous need of supplies that give satisfaction and heighten self-esteem simultaneously are love addicts. Unable to love actively, they passively need to feel loved. They're characterized by the dependence and their narcissistic type of object choice. And they tend to change objects frequently because no object is able to provide the necessary satisfaction. Without giving any consideration to the feelings of their fellow man, they demand of them an understanding of their own feelings. They're always bent upon establishing a good understanding with people, though they are unable to feel fulfill their own part of such an understanding. This need compels them to attempt to deny their ever-present readiness to react hostilely. A couple more points. Um, the personality of the object is of no great importance. They need the supplies and it does not matter who provides them heat and flies. It does not necessarily have to be a person. It may be a drug or an obsessive hobby. Some persons of this type fare worse than others. They not only need supplies, but simultaneously fear getting them because they unconsciously consider them dangerous. 
As in the case of drug addicts, love addicts too may become incapable of getting the desired satisfaction, which in turn increases their addiction. Now, I, I, I'm sure you're much nicer than I am. I identify with that in a rather painful, vivid way. It, it characterizes a big chunk of my life. And I took that mindset into romantic relationships. And then I was terribly surprised when none of these relationships worked out because no one could ever satisfy the need inside me. That's what it's talking about. You're, you're trying to, to, uh, to get an external source to fill an internal void. And society will support you in uh, looking to romantic relationships to do, to do this, that, 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 you know, the films and the books and so on. Uh, there's a Sondheim line, a slotted spoon doesn't hold much soup. Uh, and as a slotted spoon, it doesn't matter how much love was poured in. It was never enough and I couldn't keep it there. And so I was constantly trying to get the other person to love me more or love me better. And they couldn't. So I became bitter and hostile towards them. Um, they say in old fashioned AA. In your first year, get a pot plant. If the pot plant survives in the second year, get a hamster or a gerbil, not a higher life form, something which doesn't require much, or maybe a stick insect. If the stick insect doesn't, doesn't uh, die uh, at your hand, try some tropical fish. When you're maybe five or six years sober, consider a kitten. When you're seven or eight years sober, consider a puppy. When you're 10 years sober, maybe go on a date or two. Tom describes how in California, they'd have to get at the young people's meetings, the newcomers to repeat them to themselves. If I don't get laid, I'm not gonna die. If I don't get laid, I'm not gonna die. Um, <laughs> dysfunctional relationships. Tom quotes a chap called Glenn, who is a member of 19 different 12-step fellowships, who talks about his object for a good romantic relationship. Uh, the orphan with the big eyes and the broken wing. Um, he says, I can sniff them out through lead. And Tom's advice in these situations, if you go into a room and your eyes meet across the room at someone you know is the one, don't even say hello. Find someone you find dull and go for a walk in the park with them six times to see if there's someone you can develop the skill of having a conversation with. These toxic relationships, uh, there was a, I'm sure I've said this one before, that there was a, a video I saw on, on Facebook uh, it was a girl doing one of those smudging ceremonies. She wasn't Native American, but she was doing a Native American smudging ceremony with the spurning the sage and the incantations to, to get rid of the toxic energy in the room. And the caption underneath was trying to using a Native American ceremony to get rid of the toxicity in the room when you are the toxicity in the room. So I would take my toxicity into uh, romantic relationships, um, which were just repeats of each other. There were these attempts to uh, mend my wounded self-esteem by extracting specialness from another person. Because I felt I was giving up my, I was surrendering my worthlessness in return for their specialness. I felt I was cheating the other person and so felt hostile towards them for falling for the falling for the ruse. I lost respect for anyone who was interested. If they were interested, if they weren't interested, they could see the truth. Therefore, they had my respect. So I was after the people who were unavailable. As soon as someone was available, they sickened me because I could see they couldn't see through the, the ruse. It was all very complicated and, and it doomed me to years of extremely unsatisfactory relationships. 
now that those that's a kind of collage of all sorts of different things how does this work with sponsees um if your sponsee has a pattern of toxic relationships um the way frankly if they're in one there's probably a not as as when I asked my friend, my sponsor, Doug, once how to deal with a particularly difficult situation, he said hide on the basis that there's probably nothing you can say or do. If they're in a toxic relationship, there's probably nothing you can say or do. It's just like they're in an addiction. It will need to work itself through. Um, I needed to learn how to be in relationships, like intimate relationships, which work. I've been with someone for, for 17 years or so. Um, I need to do that by learning how to, uh, how to be a friend, how to be a colleague, how to be a normal human being or a healthy human being in all sorts of ordinary settings before I could work up to the very, very perilous task of having an intimate relationship i i couldn't go straight in with those and have them work i needed to learn how to just be an ordinary person first um you wouldn't be able to answer the the, the buzzer thing is that i think he's got keys anyway um, um i needed to work up to it and i needed to uh it talks in the big book it's very it's very clever if uh, so if the relationship is going to work, it has to be on an entirely new basis. And the entirely, because the old basis didn't work. Uh, I had a sequence of, so I, I had a reasonably healthy relationship for a few years in AA, and then that broke up. And then I went back to crazy land. Basically, the old me got revived, the unprocessed sort of love addict, relationship addict me got revived and the whole thing blew up again and um uh what i what i had to do was to learn how to have relationships with an entirely new type of person on an entirely new basis i'm just going to close the door um and now the source for this um uh there are several sources don pritz you can point them towards don pritz who says, I don't know how to have a healthy, sick relationship. What's a sick relationship? It's, it's a relationship you want anything out of. Uh, someone said to me a few years ago, the two reasons to have a long, uh, uh, an intimate relationship is if you're lacking opportunities for forgiveness and lacking opportunities for service, if you feel that you're just not useful enough, you're just doing, you know, you're getting your way too much of the time and you're just spending too much time doing fun stuff for yourself. You, you want to sacrifice some stuff and you're just getting on too well with everyone. There's just nothing to forgive. You're getting out of practice with forgiveness. Then I've got a great idea for you. Intimate relationship. It will solve these two problems instantly. And the job Harold, Rabbi Harold Kushner talks about this, about um, forgiveness and service being the two main uh, ingredients uh rabbi manis friedman is very good and there are lots and lots of other authors as well um and so to to treat the and this is the thing to to uh, to, so to use the intimate relationship as basically an extension of the program generally it's not like a special carved out area it's um uh it's a venue for the two activities of forgiveness and service and the way i learned to have healthy relationships the first stage was you, well you've got to stop having the toxic ones and the chief way to stop having the toxic ones in my experience was to uh, as tom suggested not say hello to the toxic people and you know they're toxic because you're attracted to them if you have a toxic history um so i had to be super careful and super bounded about who i went on dates with who i was who i showed interest in and to look out for people with different qualities and i've got loads of materials that i send sponsors uh, these are the qualities that if you uh want a healthy relationship these are the qualities to look for in someone else but the only way you're going to attract 
those people is to become those things yourself. So to learn how to develop the, um, uh, you know, the qualities of, of, of emotional balance and maturity and selflessness and prudence and forethought and reasonableness and flexibility and all of those other, all of those other things. That if one can, if one learns how to demonstrate those, one will automatically attract um, different people. And the toxic people will run like a mile from you. You won't even have to avoid them anymore after a while because they will they will sniff that you're not up for the dance. Um, so the difficulty with uh, so, so with sponsees, there are the uh, if they're, as I said, if they're in a toxic relationship, there's almost nothing you can do uh, unless they're willing to take a break from it. Um, the ones who are not and are just re-entering the dating game, uh, I just pass on everything I've just said to you uh, uh, about uh, that you can't uh, you can't take that mindset of treating the relationship as a source of something to satisfy, to mend one's wounded self-esteem or to give one identity or something like that and make it work. It has to be on an entirely new basis. And if people are willing to work on that new basis, then it works very well. Um, and that's pretty much it on the, on the sort of dating and relationship side of things. Everything I know comes from people who have been married for 10, 20, 30, 40 or 50 years and from books by mostly rabbis and some other people who are marriage guidance counsellors and so on. That's where now I haven't devised anything myself, everything I've got from other people. Uh, also, Al-Anon really, really, Al-Anon principles really, really help if people are struggling in intimate relationships to recognise that, uh, you know, the let it begin with me and all of the detachment stuff is immensely helpful for a lot of people. Um, does anyone have any questions about the uh, dating and relationship side of things? Uh, James. Thanks, Tim. Um, yeah, I've got a question about... So what's happened a couple of times when I've been sponsoring people is that the who are alcoholics, the um, if the alcoholics in a relation on a long term relationship, they they come into recovery and they get sober and it's all great for a while, but then the person I'm sponsoring starts to say that their partner raises issues about the sheer amount of time their spending involved with AA. So for a while, it's all great. But then as time goes on, there seems to be like, um, I suppose, possibly a resentment that's being, that's, that's happening in the relationship with the, with the non-alcoholic. And what is, do you have suggestions about what might help a person who finds themselves in that situation? I'm not talking about a toxic relationship. I'm just talking about a relationship where this occurs yeah so that's that's a that that's a rare problem mostly because most people have burnt their relationships to the ground by the time they get into aa i've had very few sponsors that have come in with an intact relationship but that's always a problem when they have an intact relationship um unfortunately the, the the difficult thing is most of the ones that come in within an intact relationship when they get well the relationship breaks down because the the the, the other person was as unwell as they were either as alcoholics or addicts or as codependents or or alanons and unless they engage in a recovery process it's it's very in my experience in my own sponsee history it's been very rare for those relationships to survive it occasionally happens but um, uh, it's not just with intimate relationships. You get this with, with uh, uh, family obligations, um, with friends as well. People's friends get bitter sometimes about AA. Um, one of my sponsors, great line, things he bangs on about uh, a lot is on page 19, a much more important demonstrations, a demonstration of our principles lies in our respective homes, occupations and affairs. and. It can take a while to figure out whether the spouse is complaining, uh, let's say the spouse, let's say it's a spouse, whether the spouse is complaining because the sponsee is uh, 
is taking the mickey is not fulfilling their family obligations is just not around anymore bob bob you begin to listen to bob bizantz and linda bizantz so he's been in AA for 5,000 years. She's been in Al-Anon for 5,000 years. And they do panels together. Um, and they're very good about, it often happens, in, you know, somewhere around six, seven years, both of them super active in their respective programs, but like ships in the night, not, you know, the, the, they occasionally meet across the kitchen table <laughs> going in opposite directions, but that's it. Um, and so I... Uh, and it talks in the big book about this. So you can point straight back to the big book that uh, uh, a program which doesn't involve the family obligations is no program at all. And so usually there's a way around that. Uh, however, sometimes there's something else going on and it's essentially a subconscious resentment on the part of the spouse that AA is doing for the spouse what they were unable to do. And it comes out as something else. Um, uh, the other uh, thing that may happen, if the person themselves is very, very codependent and needy, however much the person gives them, uh, it will never be enough. So when they had all of their time, it wasn't enough. And now AA is even getting 10% of the time is too much because even when they're getting all of them, they're feeling unsatisfied by I've seen that a number of times. So you've got to ferret out what's actually going on there. But sometimes the spouse is you're like totally behind the spouse because the sponsor is being totally unreasonable. And other times you think, oh, dear, this is, you know, sometimes the, the, the person's going to one meeting a week. And the spouse is you're always at AA and they're just not, you know, it's the fact they're going at all becomes a point of contention. So one's got to listen very carefully and find out what's going on, because there's often a story behind that. Does that make sense, James? Yes. Yeah, it does. Thank you, Tim. Harry. Hey, Harry, alcoholic. Thanks, Tim, for that. Um, so I was trying to think through my my sponsees, I think there's kind of three categories. One, people already in long-term relationships and you've got, you know, some work in the program to do there. People who are, which is, I think, really the emphasis of what you were getting at with lots of the stuff you were just talking about. So lots of people are very keen to get messy and get dating and get active. And so the guidance to maybe wait 10 years and, uh, and see it as an opportunity for service and forgiveness, that's what I'll deploy with them. But there's another category, which is I encounter people who are quite fretful about getting into relationships and very nervous and very timid. And actually, they it's a problem in, in another direction. It feels like, you know, it's a very mean kind of area of their life. And with a couple of people, I've, I've actually said, you know, maybe you should go and make a mistake. <laughs> go and try and date some people who maybe make a mistake. What do you reckon to that? If you expose yourself, I should use that phrase cautiously. If you expose your, yourself to, to social media, I don't mean anything else, if, uh, to, uh, and to, to films and to books, you, get, you can get the idea that the two important things in life are sex and money, or, or, or romantic love and money, or career gets dressed up as career and marriage. It's the same, boils down to the same thing. And there's a distortion there. Um, I mean, I'd assert that uh, people are a lot poorer going through life without learning at least something of a foreign language and something of a musical instrument. But people think that nothing of going through life without learning a musical instrument. And honestly, you know, that's that to me, that's up there with career and um, uh, sex, for instance. Uh, I had a, a psychotherapist once called Sally, who is marvellous in all sorts of ways. And she said that she blamed a lot of problems that her therapies had on the programme Friends. I don't know if anyone remembers the programme Friends. So people would watch Friends and see these bunch of people who were friends, who hung out with each other all the time and spent a lot of time in each other's flats and were, were fun and they were funny and they had a good time. And when they have a 
Never a problem. It's solved within 23 minutes. And then they'd come in and talk about their prop, their actual relationships and feel incredibly inadequate because they're basically because their relationship, their friendships did not match what they were seeing on friends. And I think people can suffer from this enormously uh, in the area of of sex and romance. And I've got this sort of idealistic ideas of of how of what these things should look like, which are entirely unrealistic. Um, one can, of course, make a project of dating. Uh, my sponsor, actually, I had a sponsor when I was in my second year. I, mean, I was joking about the 10 years. Maybe for some people it does take 10 years. Maybe other people, you work the steps, you, you dip your toe in the water in the second year or the third year. Um, but my sponsor said, I said, I'm not meeting anyone. He said, are you going to places where you can meet people? No, I'm not. Well, of course, you have to you have to place yourself like with job, finding a job. You have to be applying for jobs to be offered a job. Um, and so to take the action, it's just like with everything else. If you're timid about work, to take the action and then put the results in God's hands, take the act, keep taking the action, review it, talk, and to talk to, just like with anything else, talk to people who are successful in this area, find out what they did and do what they did. Um, uh, a, a good point, a, a case in point, uh, I got to spend some time with Jim Willis about 10 years ago he was over i think he was over 50 years sober at that time and, and around 50 years married and he talked about intimate relationships and uh if you've got your own kind of weirdness and darkness you don't bring that and put it on the dining room table for your spouse to deal with you go and find you find someone to deal with it they've got their own stuff they don't have to deal with yours as well and it runs totally against a lot of you know, contemporary wisdom about you got to tell everyone everything and the you know, openness. And but I figured he's married for fifty years. I'd like to be married for fifty years. I'm going to do what he does, and so I just copy. And so I get people who are timid about. Uh, I, it's a very common thing being timid about dating, timid about relationships. Copy people who are successful at it. Find out what they do do and copy. Monkey see, monkey do. And yeah, I think you're right, absolute, to, to make lots of mistakes. But also, um, sometimes um, treating dating as a project in itself sort of dooms you to failure because it, it places too much emphasis on the outcome. Often people are very, it's because they're fixated on the outcome. I need to have an intimate relationship and I'm not a worthy member of society unless I'm, I'm you know, doing things with my body, with someone else's body in the dark somewhere. Uh, that's the idea. Um, uh, and of course, one can, I talked to a priest once and I talked, I was talking to him about celibacy. And he said, do you think people who are celibate, knowing that he was someone who <laughs> knew a lot of people who were celibate, are their lives any the less rich for their celibacy? He says, no, funnily enough, it's quite the reverse. But that the energy that would have gone into the intimate relationships has to find an expression and finds wonderful expressions in all sorts of other ways. So not to be neurotic about it, but... Um, the advice that I was always given, which I pass on as well, is if you engage in society and do lots of interesting things, you'll meet people and things will you'll find people you get on with. And you don't need to jump into bed immediately with people to tick the box of you're having an intimate relationship. Maybe get to know people as friends and see what grows out of it. Um, Maya had a long term relationship for about eight years with someone actually in AA. And that's how it happened. I wasn't looking for it. But I got to know them as a friend. And one day we were playing piano duets and then the next moment we weren't. And this took, you know, this we were, to, we were friends for a while before, you know, Foray's Dolly Suite led on to something in, <laughs> just as innocent, but rather different. Um, so uh, not making a project out of it can sometimes be the best, the best way of dealing with it. Uh, good generalship suggests that the question be attacked on the flank rather than risk a face-to-face -face confrontation. So 
So we're running out of time a little bit. Does anyone have any more questions on these topics? So the, the topics for next week, and then I think I'm done on this, are uh, uh, exercise and physical health, uh, families, that'll be quick. <laughs> Workplace, and the, the, the larger topic of drama. If you've got, um, maybe some of you have got sponsees, have got sponsees who have a lot of drama who have a lot of dramatic dramatic incidents and massive realizations every every day of the week how to deal with traumatic sponsees um so i think that's 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 for next week so i'll hand it back to you uh, omar okay um thank you tim so much for the presentation i think we have reached the end of the meeting if there are no more questions maybe i'll hand it back to you um to end it with the serenity prayer Great. So let, let's close with the serenity prayer, uh, using the word God as you do it and understand it. God, God grant me the serenity, me serenity to accept, accept the things, things I cannot, I cannot change, change, courage, courage to change the things I can, I can and the wisdom, wisdom to, know to know the difference. Thank you, Tim. Thank you.